This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. Today on Government Matters, American Special Operations Forces are headed back to the Horn of Africa. I'll talk to a counterterrorism expert on combating Al-Shabaab. Then, is it time to reorganize NATO given today's realities? How a European army could strengthen the alliance? And a new framework to address the shifting demographics at the southern border. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gerges. President Biden has just authorized the deployment of hundreds of troops to Somalia. The president also approved the Pentagon's request to target specific leaders of the Somali terror group Al-Shabaab. Bill Raggio is a senior fellow at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies and the editor of FDD's Long War Journal. Bill, welcome to the program. Thank you. The group Al-Shabaab hasn't been in the news lately. Remind us of who they are and how large of an operational footprint they have. Al-Shabaab is Al-Qaeda's branch in Eastern Africa. Uh, it is most prominent in Somalia, as well as in northern and central Kenya. Um, it, is, it, it is probably one of Al-Qaeda's most effective branches. It operates in all of uh, central and southern Somalia, inside Somalia we're talking about here. And look, I've seen estimates where they say about 5,000 fighters. That number has to be wrong. It controls a significant amount of territory in Somalia. Uh, you, the previous U.S. commander, CENTCOM, uh, several years ago said about 25% of Somalia was under Shabab control. The group has only gotten stronger and more effective. I would estimate it controls at least 35 to 45% of the country. So the big question then is, do they pose a threat to Americans or American interests abroad? Absolutely. Shabab has been responsible for several external threats. The, um, the check on the laptops, the laptop bomb, that came from Shabab. That was about a decade ago. Uh, they bl actually blew up an airplane or put a hole in an airplane with one such device. But we have to remember that all of Al-Qaeda's branches or um, what Al-Qaeda refers to as their theaters are a threat. Once they achieve safe haven, they train, they, they fight the local, but they use that to conduct attacks against U.S. interests both here at home and abroad. So what was the rationale for the previous administration to pull out those forces, and what prompted this current decision? The, there's been the idea of ending the so-called endless wars. That was an idea that began under the Obama administration. President Obama wanted to withdraw from Afghanistan. He, he withdrew from Iraq. Um, President Trump picked this up and, and ran with it. Um, it's a it's an idea prevalent on both sides, uh, in both Republican and Democratic circles. Um, but the problem is, is we could end our involvement in these wars, but these wars do not end. The enemy gets a vote. In the case of Somalia, Shabab is an effective group, and it's beginning to um, it, it directly threatens the viability of the Somali state, which is quite weak. And I don't think President Biden wants to see another state go under jihadist control after Afghanistan collapsed on his watch. So the White House hasn't confirmed this, but the New York Times is reporting that the number of special ops forces would be around 450. What would they be doing? What's the mission? 
Yeah, a mission like that would be largely to target leadership of Shabab. Um, and also they'll probably per try to prevent major attacks. But when President Trump withdrew, there was about 750 special forces in Somalia, and that was barely keeping a lid on the problem. It looks like we're just putting a, a smaller lid on the on the cauldron of Somalia. I was going to ask, is that enough? And and are military operations the best way to address this issue? It's not a new situation. It's not a new situation. Uh, the reality is, is that Somalia needs to improve its own capabilities. But two decades, um, it still remains a fractured country. So there is a political solution that needs to be found. But until that's found, letting a group like Shabab just uh, run free, to have free reign to operate in Somalia is quite dangerous. So there is that military component needed. Is it enough? I don't think so. I, don't, I never look at numbers when it comes to missions. But what is the mission? And then you decide how many troops you need to achieve that mission. What likes to happen in Washington is they say, we do, they just throw numbers at a problem. And that's not, a way, that's not the right way to conduct operations. Like so, so what should the mission be, Bill? Should it be to completely destroy al-Shabaab? A mission like that would require tens of thousands of American troops uh, in order to do that. There is an African Union force that's in Somalia that has over 22,000 troops, but they mainly sit on their bases. That mission would need to be uh, or reorganized and, and a little bit more aggressive. Uh, there, you know, Shabab. There needs to be a uh, an information campaign against Shabab. This is something we're unwilling to do because it involves religion and uh, groups like Shabab or Al Qaeda have a have a religious component that we we want to ignore. So it's yeah. It's, it, but if you want to try and keep the lid on the problem and, and keep Shabab from becoming more and more effective. It would take several thousand troops, you know, organized in a manner that can be conducting continuous operations. So, so do you think this is going to be a slow-burning forever war? This, the way that we have resourced this war in Somalia, yes, it will be a slow-burn war, just as you said. So, what kind of uh, support does the U.S. have from the Somali government and from partner nations? The U.S. government does have uh, significant support. The African Union countries, that's countries like Kenya, Uganda, Burundi, um, they, uh, they all support U.S. mission in, uh, in Somalia. They need them, particularly U.S. air power and special operations rate. And the Somali government, absolutely, it's dependent on the U.S. to keep it afloat. Uh, so, yeah, there, there is tons of support. It's just the real problem in Somalia is that the Somali government and the Somali political parties remain fractured and often fight each other more than they're willing to fight Shabab. So how does this decision to redeploy square with the White House's complete pullout from Afghanistan? Yeah, I think, again, I think this is predicated on the, the administration doesn't want to see another country fall under the control of an, of an al-Qaeda link group. In the case of Afghanistan, the Taliban and al-Qaeda are inextricably linked. Al-Qaeda supported the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan and, and remain there today. And I don't think this administration wants to see that happen again. It, it saw what happened when it pretended that a threat wasn't a threat. And now you have a Taliban-controlled uh, Afghanistan. And if if I think things stay on this path, I think you could see Somalia come, come under, without U.S. involvement, Somalia could come, there, come under Shabab control in a year, two years, three years, a number on that. But they've 
they've become becoming increasingly more powerful. And I don't, I really think this administration wants to, doesn't want these optics. It's had enough foreign policy failures. All right, Bill, appreciate you being on the program. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me, it was a pleasure. Coming next on Government Matters, does NATO need to change with the times? You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. During the Cold War, Western Europe relied on American military power to deter Soviet aggression. Today, NATO needs to reorganize and establish itself as a credible force for the defense of Western democracy. That's according to Bruce Ackerman. He's a professor of law and political science at Yale University. Professor, welcome to the program. How are you? Pleasure being here. You recommend Europe raising an army that would be, be under a unified command. First, explain why you think that's needed. Well, uh, if uh, each member state of NATO has its own uh, little army, uh, uh, it would be extremely easy for uh, uh, Putin, who has a coordinated force, uh, to uh, uh, pick each uh, country off one by one. Uh, uh, so there must be a unified European command as part of NATO. And we have uh, uh, a, a European parliament now, uh, uh, headed by Ursula von der Leyen, uh, uh, who uh, has, which has the uh, democratic legitimacy to actually uh, name uh, the commander of the European uh, component of NATO. Of course, uh, you know, they, uh, <clears throat> the Germans uh, also are now uh, uh, willing to uh, fund uh, the, uh, the do their fair share uh, and uh, other countries as well in financing an army of 400, 500,000 uh, men. Uh, uh, we uh, in the United States would, of course, contribute the land force as well uh, of, let's say, 50,000. Uh, uh, the, the thing that we will contribute is a Navy and an Air Force and a rockets and all of this because we have a compelling strategic advantage here. Uh, so the, uh, um, the crucial thing is to uh, uh, get uh, uh, this uh, new uh, NATO uh, uh, in force so that it can deter uh, uh, Putin's aggression. Uh, uh, and it, uh, and uh, here is an issue in which uh, Joe Biden uh, can get uh, a, a broad bipartisan majority uh, uh, to revise the NATO treaty. Which well, is Professor, let me, let me, before we talk about yes. revising the treaty itself, let me ask you about what French President Macron said. He says, quote, we need to bring to being a European proposal to forge a new security and stability order. We need to build it between Europeans, then share it with our allies in the NATO framework. What does that mean, a new security and stability order? Well, you see, uh, Macron <coughs> is also a crucial player because he is uh, a chairman of uh, another uh, fundamental component in the European Union, and he has a great mandate, the only, the strongest mandate, to uh, organize Europe. Um, of course, he has to do it on his own until uh, uh, Biden uh, comes out and says, 
we're going to do our uh, do our share to rebuild the Western alliance that uh, President Trump unfortunately uh, destroyed. You say, uh, you say in your article that some members have not remained faithful to the treaty's founding principles, and you call out Turkey specifically. Should yes. they be kicked out of NATO, and, and is there a, a way to legally do that? Absolutely. Um, the, uh, indeed, uh, I was uh, very surprised uh, uh, to see that a leading newspaper uh, in uh, uh, Turkey today uh, uh, quoted uh, uh, extensively from my uh, article uh, uh, in Politico. Uh, uh, the um, uh, uh, NATO uh, uh, is committed in 1948 uh, or 9 uh, uh, to uh, every member state to uh, uh, preserving and building uh, free institutions. Uh, uh, now, it is absolutely plain that uh, Turkey uh, at the present time is uh, not committed to uh, uh, free institutions and moreover attacked NATO in Syria. Um, uh, uh, this is a breach of the alliance. Uh, you cannot have uh, an ally. Your, the United States is at the present time uh, uh, committed to defend uh, a country that is attacking NATO allies and us? No. Well, well you uh, know, Professor, any changes to the NATO treaty would require agreement by two-thirds of the Senate. So really, how likely is two-thirds of the Senate to, to agree on anything? It, this is one of the very small number of issues in which there is a strong bipartisan coalition. And it's terribly important uh, for, and uh, I've been receiving a correspondence from many thoughtful conservatives. Uh, 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 I don't think that, that, that uh, we should uh, despair uh, and uh, uh, we should find a few issues in which the American people can unite, and one of them is the defense of uh, 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 the, uh, the Western alliance, uh, uh, which is committed to democracy. Uh, and uh, the uh, uh, and I don't think there'll be some dissents. Of course, this is the nature of uh, 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 politics, democratic politics. But I think that Biden first should say we do want to support a uh, a unified transatlantic alliance he can just state that and work with uh, the uh, the europeans uh, in the european union uh, to build up something that it makes real sense militarily at uh the present time after all the united states is committed to defending against uh, uh russian aggression all right uh, all right, Professor, we're out of time, unfortunately. Yes. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. Up next, new strategy recommendations to handle the influx of migrants and refugees at the southern border. Stay with us. With the possible end of Title 42, the Department of Homeland Security is expecting a surge at the southern border. My guest recommends a new strategy to reflect the changing conditions there. Teresa Cardinal-Brown is the Managing Director of Immigration and Cross-Border Policy at the Bipartisan Policy Center. Teresa, welcome to the program. Glad to be here. Thanks so much. 
first tell us about the demographics of the people that are showing up at the southern border and how that has been changing recently. Sure, thank you. Um, so for most of the history that we have been guarding our U.S.-Mexico border from immigration, the majority of people arriving to that border, 99%, were Mexicans, usually single adults, usually males, um, looking for work. But what we have seen, at least since 2014, is a significant demographic shift, starting with Central Americans from El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, but also unaccompanied children, families, much more vulnerable people. And what that means is that the processes, procedures, even the infrastructure at the border is not really compatible with managing that type of migration, in part because we can't send Central Americans directly back to Mexico, at least unless Mexico agrees, um, but also because they're asking for asylum. And that is a different kind of process. Well, speaking of <clears throat> asylum, it's also Russians and Ukrainians are now showing up at the border uh, with Mexico. Yeah, and, and what has happened, I think, in the last five years is that it's not just Central Americans anymore. It's all of Latin America, and as we're seeing, people from other places around the world. So you recommend separating the, um, the processing of asylum seekers with those crossing illegally. Explain that. Yeah, so um, since 9-11, obviously, and since the creation of the Department of Homeland Security, our Border Patrol has engaged a lot in law enforcement matters and looked at the border as a security issue. And certainly there is security issues that we have to address at the border. There's contraband, there's drugs, there's smugglers. But most of the people arriving are simply migration issues. They are people seeking um, security. They are not a security threat to the United States. And yet the Border Patrol is spending most of its time dealing with this population rather than looking for the true security threats that they should be doing. So what I am suggesting, and the Bipartisan Policy Center has been looking at this for several years, is that we need to kind of think of these as two different problems at the border. There's a migration management problem, which is about how we receive and process these people that are coming to the border seeking asylum. And then there's a security issue that we need to address separately. Although Border Patrol is gonna encounter everybody who arrives to the border, if it's quickly determined that these people are not a security or a law enforcement issue, I believe that that should be a separate process with separate people. Let our Border Patrol agents get back to securing the border for what they need to and put the migration management in the hands of a new uh, set of facilities, a new um, maybe operational set of personnel who aren't the same. So before we talk about the personnel, let's talk about the infrastructure sure. that would be required. Yeah, so our Border Patrol stations uh, look a lot like your local police precinct. There's jail cells, there's um, seats where people can be handcuffed to the tables while they're uh, put through their processing, fingerprinting stations, all of that. Um, and these facilities are meant to hold people for not very long, 72 hours, and they're not certainly suitable for families or small children. So we need a different kind of uh, facility. We've created these um, expansion facilities, temporary processing facilities that get overcrowded, but I think we, we've seen them as sort of temporary things that we set up for a short period of time. But I think we need to recognize that we're now almost 10 years into a shift and we need a different type of infrastructure that's permanently available at the border. So what about the personnel enhancements or additions? So the personnel enhancements really are about getting people whose first job is about migration at the border. And um, that means maybe a new uh, type of personnel. I mean, the Border Patrol has created these processing coordinators that are not law enforcement agents per se, but I think we need to ex expand that pool. We also need to recognize that we probably need a permanent presence of our asylum officers at the border now. And we need to think about our immigration courts, which is where most of these people are ending up 
putting them into a process that's a growing backlog in our existing immigration courts doesn't work. Let's set up new courts that are specifically for the border areas that can do these cases in a much more expeditious way. Well, everything costs money. And uh, Congress did fund uh, technology improvements for yes. Customs um, and Border Protection in 2017. What has that been used for? And is what you're recommending a shift of funding or does it require new funding? It probably will require new funding. The technology enhancements are mainly for surveillance at the border, um, for sensors and aerial technologies and things like that. This is a different kind of process and I think it's gonna be some combination of funding at US Citizenship and Immigration Services that has the asylum office, obviously the immigration courts. Maybe we need FEMA in there to help with the humanitarian needs of these people. Um, but I think we need to think about it differently. You know, I don't need to tell you that this uh, topic inflames uh, passions on both sides of the aisle. You've been looking at it for a long time, so you know. Why hasn't there been progress made on this topic? I think part of the reason is that we have been depending on our strategy of deterrence, which has uh, been our strategy at the border for three decades now, at least since the 1990s. And the idea that by delivering consequences such as prosecuting people and putting them in jail or making sure that they're expeditedly deported, that will deter people from coming. But I think what we're seeing now is that those kind of deterrence measures don't have the same impact for this migrant flow that we're seeing right now. So that's why I think we need to shift a little bit and think about them as different functions. Um, that processing people in an expedited way so that they come to the conclusion of their case within a matter of months rather than a matter of years and then if they don't qualify to stay, get sent back at that point might be a better way to manage this than trying to make the situation harder or harsher for them to cross because the situations they're fleeing, frankly, are not going to be harder than what we would do to them at the border. All right. Well, Teresa, we appreciate you coming in and talking to us about this. Thank you so much. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website at govmatters.tv. And tell us what you thought about today's program. Send us your comments on LinkedIn. You can follow us at Government Matters Media. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people, in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable 
include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber, and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service. It is, it is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016, and even an earlier version of it, Gen, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high-throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers, as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's going to be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff. Our managing director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.